Amen. Hey, everyone. Hello, hello. Worship team, thank you so much. You know, the worship team and the sound crew and the tech team, they put in so many extra hours so that we can hear each other sing and hear the musicians and hear the instruments. Let's give them a round of applause. (laughs) Servants, servants all. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Yeah, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, I'm Jeff. Um, I spell it with a G, which is a pain, but that's fine. Um, and we're in a series uh, to start off 2018 called Living Sacrifices, right? And this, there's a text that's our kind of our controlling text for these four Fridays. So Sam, my front and center man, would you read that real loud after you swallow your soda? Yeah, absolutely. That would be so helpful. Thank you. <laughs> Teach you to drink soda at CCF. <laughs> Just kidding. What a text. You could chew on that for four weeks. <laughs> Last week, Shannon did a great job unpacking what, some of what that means, didn't she? That in response to God's mercy, we are to offer everything about ourselves to him. We are to, to sacrifice ourselves, but also stay alive. It's this really interesting image that Paul uses. In other words, we are to be, in a sense, as good as dead to ourselves, but alive and completely available to the purposes of God. And I just want to pause there because that is a very big deal. I think that we can be, in in, in our culture, I think we can be in danger of preaching a message where the most important thing is you and me getting saved. You finding life. You and me getting put back together internally, spiritually, and relationally with the people around us. And while all that is true, giving your life to Jesus uh, will actually restore your humanity and teach you how to live as he always designed us to live. We would be out of line if we didn't also preach really clearly about what it costs to follow Jesus. Now, a costly gospel might come as a shock to our American sensibilities if you're from or grew up in this country. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that's in our Constitution, right? It's a good document. They're in there. It's like the foundation of what it means to be an American, yeah? But the example Jesus sets is actually quite contrary to all three of those things. Life Lay down your life. Liberty, be the servant of all. And seek first, not happiness, but the kingdom of God, which sometimes runs quite contrary to our happiness. Offering ourselves as living sacrifices affects all of life. It's our whole self. So we can talk about all kinds of things. But for the next three weeks... We're going to zero in on a few key zones in our lives where it can be really hard to offer those things as living sacrifices, offer those parts of ourselves to God as living sacrifices. We're going to talk about where we live, 
We're going to talk about who our friends are, and we're going to talk about how we spend our money. These are three things that have significant power over us. But they're also three things that Jesus wants us to give to him. And tonight we're going to talk about where we live. How do living sacrifices think about where they should live? And maybe, and this is helpful, I think, first of all, we should ask the question, is that even a thing, really? Like, does Jesus even care where we live? How in the world would becoming a Christian have anything to do with where you end up living? Ah, let's read the story. Okay, where did I put my Bible? Over here. So, if you will turn with me in your Bibles, or it'll be on the screen, to the very end of Luke chapter 9. It's a super long chapter, over 60 verses, and Luke is the third book in the New Testament. About this far in. Uh, starting in verse 57, okay? As they were walking along, this is Jesus and his disciples and some other people following him around. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, Jesus, said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now, at first, this is, this is great. This guy runs up to Jesus and says, I will follow you wherever you go. What a great opener statement, right? That's what we all should be saying. And Jesus kind of says, really? Are you sure? Because it's going to be kind of an uncomfortable road trip. You ever think about that? Oh, yeah, Jesus is Lord. But when I graduate, I still get to decide where I'm going to move to get a job. Yeah, Jesus is my king, but he's my subject when I tell him what neighborhood I want to raise my kids in. Oh yeah, in view of God's mercy, I will offer myself as a living sacrifice, but that sacrifice is hopping right off of that altar if Jesus tells me to live on campus another year. Right? I think we get selective about what Jesus is Lord of in our lives sometimes, don't we? Sometimes the sacrifice starts burning up, and we're like, wait, no, and we grab it, and we pound out the flames, I want to keep this one. And that applies to where we live. It's clearly nothing new to the cost of following Jesus. As we can see, it's actually a fairly original challenge to following him. But Jesus kind of lays down a marker in this story. He lays it down as one of the first things it's going to cost us. I'll follow you wherever you go. Are you sure? Because the living arrangements that come with following me aren't always very comfy. And this matters because following Jesus, offering ourselves to our merciful God as sacrifices that are still walking around, is a question of priorities, isn't it? What comes first in my life, me or Jesus? My little kingdom where I get to be king, I get to be the boss, or the kingdom of God, which we're learning about in discipleship class. You should come. My priorities are the priorities of the mission of Jesus. Let's keep reading the rest of this section. Jesus said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. 
but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus said, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. I, I kind of, I've come to call these, con, these conditions firsts. Jesus calls one guy and he says, yeah, 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 but, but first, let me do this and this and this. Another guy says, you know, initiates with Jesus, I'll follow you, but, but first, can I just... And both times Jesus says, no, no firsts. One guy wants to wait until his dad has died before he decides to follow Jesus. And I think some of us try to follow Jesus like that too, don't we? We will follow Jesus as long as our parents are okay with what he asks us to do. And the second guy is similar, but Jesus says you can't look back while you're trying to plow forward. It's this image of a guy who's pushing the plow and he keeps looking back over his shoulder, so the plow's like, and just messing up the whole field. Now, Jesus is not saying that he's anti-family. Here's what he is saying. He's anti-family first. If your family is the most important thing to you, Jesus wants you to change that. He wants to be your priority. He wants to be the most important thing to you. And I say that as a dad of really wonderful children and a husband to a fantastic lady. Jesus says to me, she is. Some of you have met her, you know. (laughs) Jesus says to me, Jeff, they are not your priority. Your priority is me. And actually, you'll be better with them if I am your priority. So, don't worry. Jesus is okay with you calling your mom and dad to say goodbye before you leave on SSI. (laughs) Don't forget to fill out your application. Do Sunday night. But what he's saying is, no firsts. Following Jesus is about our priorities. And our priorities are going to affect where we live for the rest of our lives. Now, why? Why would Jesus connect where we live, with following him. Why does he make it about that in this story? Why would he tell that original guy that following him will have an effect on where and how he lives? Here's why. Because where we live is directly connected to the mission of God. The people you will have the most influence over are those in closest proximity to you. That's how the good news about Jesus spreads, through relationships. Where you are is the best place for the message to get out. So if where you are is the best place for the message of Jesus to get around, then of course Jesus would have an opinion on where you are, or ought to be. Because the deepest relationships, which is the best zone for influencing people, the deepest relationships require proximity, don't they? Closeness, shared experience. That's why God is always, always up close and personal in the lives of the people he's trying to reach. In the garden, he goes on walks with Adam and Eve. In the nomadic campsite of Israel, he pitches his tent smack in the middle of camp. Once Israel settles into cities, he wants his house, the temple, to be smack in the middle of the capital city. All the way till we get to Jesus, when God comes down himself 
and invites people to actually follow him around. Proximity matters. God has always said where you live makes all the difference to who you are able to influence. God has called me to be a missionary to Western, and I love it. It's also why I don't live down by UW. Can you imagine if I had to make that commute every day? Can you imagine how little of my life any of the people I was trying to reach would actually get to see? I can't bring my family with me all day on campus. They can't come down to Seattle into my home to see what our life is like as we try to follow Jesus in this silly world, which my family is also silly. We couldn't share life that from a distance like that. Do you ever wonder why CCF does everything we can on campus? We're on campus right now, worshiping God in this lecture hall in order to be as accessible to students like you as possible. We want proximity. The gospel gets out because of closeness. We have our cores meet in the residence halls, yeah? Because every year, who are the most vulnerable students on campus? The greenest at being in college, and therefore the most in need of the love and friendship and the welcome of Jesus' people. Who am I talking about? Freshmen! Noobs! I can say that because all of you freshmen have a fall quarter under your belt, so you're not noobs anymore. But next year, there'll be a whole new batch of them. And it's the mark of maturity when the older, more experienced start looking out for the younger, vulnerable ones. That's what we try to do in CCF. We who have been around for a little while do our best to look out for those who are younger. And it's true at a staff to student level, and it's true at a junior to freshman level. That's the kind of people we want to be. Do you ever wonder why we push living on campus so hard? Because where do most of the freshmen and transfers live? In there. I'm pointing to the walls with the signs on them. With <laughs> There's freshmen in the walls. They live on campus. Now, not all of them. I know. I know some of you started off at NXNW by Fred Meyer, like a stone's throw from my house. Or at Gather down on Garden Street. But most of the new students live on campus. In fact, stat for you, 90% of all Western students spend at least one year living on campus. So if we can reach the residence halls, we can reach 90% of all the students who ever spend time at Western. Think of it this way. And just real quick, that's obviously not the only way to reach the residence halls, clearly. And thank goodness, because I can't live on campus anymore. But I still want to reach the res halls. Think of it this way. If you were fishing, oh, I drew, I, that's, yep, that's my skills. Those are fish and land and ocean. If you were fishing and you had all these fish over here, this is like high school seniors from all over the state and the country and the world, and 90% of them pass through this one little focal point in the middle there on the one side before graduating and spreading out all over the ocean on the other side, where do you think you'd stick your fishing pole? Yeah, just say it out loud. It's fine. It's a totally obvious question. Right there in the middle. 
Go to the next slide, just in case we're not clear. Hopefully no one has any more questions about where you would put your fishing pole. That is why we encourage people who are living on campus this year to stay living there next year. So that next year's freshmen can have living sacrifices living right next door. So they can see your life and what it looks like to follow Jesus up close and personal. That's why those of you who have stayed on campus this year, like Sarah and her friends who gathered together a little little missional community, go up on the ridge. That's why you are such game changers in our community. Thank you. Thank you. Our mission from Jesus to reach the res halls has moved forward this year because you lived on campus. Thank you so much. And we know, we take very seriously how countercultural it is to live on campus. Let's be real. The culture at Western, and in CCF too, if we're honest, is for everybody to move off campus, isn't it? Oh yeah, not so much. Mm, Yeah, preach Jeff, that's right, I think that too. Mm, We're quiet, we're quiet. That's become the new norm, the new expectation. You live for a year on campus, then you go get a house or apartment with your friends, right? And, this is important, hear this very loudly. Shannon talked about this last Friday. There's nothing wrong with that. Moving off campus is not a sin. Moving off campus is not even a bad thing. Here's what is bad. If you are a Jesus person, if you do not ask him where he wants you to live, that's a problem. In one sense, I actually don't care where you live as long as you have asked Jesus for permission to do so. So in that sense, I care very much where you live. But I care far more about whether or not you have asked his permission to live there. As long as you have offered yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your appropriate response to the mercy that he's shown you. And that has got to be the way we live for the rest of our lives. I'm sure you're all starting to think about where am I going to live next year? Or you seniors are starting to think about where am I going to move next year? Or you interns, what am I going to do next year? Some of you are trying to figure out, some of you students are trying to figure out if you're going to transfer schools or not next year, right? So how do living sacrifices decide where to live? How do we navigate this? As people who, in a sense, are as good as dead, and the life that we still live is lived in complete availability to God, how do we make these kinds of decisions? I think there's some things that this Luke story teaches us. First thing I think we need to take seriously is we let Jesus decide where we will go. Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go, not wherever I want to go. Ask Jesus what he wants you to do. If he's your Lord, then treat him like it. You can't say, I will follow you wherever you go, just not there. Not an option. For living sacrifices. He gets to, gets to decide what the life of a living sacrifice is like. So we need to ask him. The next thing I think this, this, this uh, passage teaches us, 
And this is, this is such sweet, good news. Jesus goes with you. Know that Jesus goes with you. This is not, this is, this is, this is uh, the, the, even the phrasing works well. Teacher, I will, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. There's an assumed with Jesusness about that phrase. Following Jesus is not a solo mission. It's, this is not isolation or desperado. We are attaching ourselves to him. We are entrusting ourselves Remember the first phrase? The first phrase in that Romans 12, 1 and 2 makes all the difference. In view of God's mercy. That's why we live this way. We are entrusting ourselves to the most merciful person in existence. How is that a bad idea? He has sworn us a sacred oath that he will never leave us, that he will never forsake us, that he will always be with us. And if you will attach your life to his mission, he will always, always, always be with you. We get to go with him where he's going. We actually get to follow him around. And that's what makes it worth it. That's what makes the life of a living sacrifice. Paul calls it the life that is really life. It's this death life. I'm dead to myself, but I'm alive to what Jesus wants me to do, and this is real life. Incredible stuff. And because of that, this is the third thing I think we can get from this, this Luke passage. Because of that, because we are with him, following along behind him, we can trust him with the side effects of wherever he takes us. Friends, following Jesus around, wherever he goes, will be amazing and hard. It will be exhilarating and exhausting. It will be so fun and so deeply painful sometimes. Sarah put it well. She said, living in the residence halls is great, but there's going to be good days and bad days, just like wherever else you would live. The life of following Jesus is not paradise. We're hoping, we're waiting for paradise. It's not here yet. It's coming. Following Jesus, just a just little side note, following Jesus got all his original disciples killed, except for one. Sorry, he survived. They just sent him all by himself to an island. Permanently. Following Jesus around is not safe. It is not a guarantee of your happiness, comfort, or financial security. And I would be a fool and a lying pastor if I didn't tell you that. Even this weekend, even tonight in a different time zone, some Christians following Jesus wherever he goes is requiring a literal sacrifice. This weekend, people around the world who decide to follow Jesus will die for it. So why should we preach a cheaper gospel than that to you? Why should Jesus expect less of us Christians here at Western? 
Yeah, we might not die from following Jesus. Some of us actually might. But most of us might not. But our lives should be just as much not ours as theirs. I have friends who are missionaries in a closed country in the Middle East. I grew up with him. His name's Jimmy. Uh, we were both missionary kids in Kenya, and he married an amazing lady, and they went to a country that's uh, not safe for me to name. They were called there by God, and they have served him there for over a decade. And when Erin, who's the, the wife on the far, my left over there, when she got pregnant with their fourth, that's their first three kids, when she got pregnant with their fourth, it was actually perfect timing because they were due back in the States for a visit. And it's a lot safer to have a baby in the U.S. than it is in this particular country they're in. You'd be surprised how many places it's actually even better to have a baby elsewhere in the world. More affordable, <laughs> safer, sometimes there's better doctors. America does not have the market on doing pregnancy well. I don't know why you guys would like relate with that. <laughs> oh yeah, totally, totally, Jeff. <laughs> All I'm saying is this experience is not everybody's experience on the mission field. But for where they're at... It was a pretty, it's a pretty unsafe place to have a baby. Um, and they were due for a, for a visit. They were, it, they were, it, was, it, was, it was rolling up on their time for the, uh, the, their mission organization calls it a furlough. They hadn't been home for four years. Grandparents hadn't seen grandkids for four years. Here's the problem. Their work permit, which allowed them to work in country, was not coming through. The, 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 um, the bureaucracy there is painfully slow and horrifically corrupt. They knew they could have sped up the process with a few financial favors here and there, but they believed that Jesus' kingdom doesn't thrive that way, so they refused to play the game, and it slowed everything down. So what that meant is, is if they left the country to have the baby before they got their work permit, they would not be allowed back into the country. They hadn't seen relatives in four years. They were about to have this baby in a dangerous place. But they decided to stay in country. Because that's where their mission field was. That's where, when they had said to Jesus, we will follow you wherever you go, he had said, I want you to go here. And they had not heard from him permission to leave that mission field. And they told him, I mean, these are, these are honest prayers. Lord, we need a work permit, quick. This baby's coming. And it didn't come through. They had the baby where they're at. Baby's fine. Beautiful. Yeah. Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. No firsts. No conditions. I will follow you wherever you go as long as my kids are safe. No. I will follow you wherever you go as long as I get to see my friends. No. How many of you say, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go as long as I get married? I have other friends, they're college missionaries like me, but in Germany. They live a two-hour train ride west of Berlin. John used to be on staff with us back when I was a student. And then Kristen, his wife, did our internship, and my wife was her uh, intern pastoral supervisor. So that was, that's pretty cool. We're good friends with them. And they have been called to reach university students in Germany. Now, it is so expensive to live in Germany. They have to raise almost twice the budget that I have to raise to be missionaries. 
and they will never buy a house where they live. They could never afford it. They will only rent, and they pay more in rent than I do in my mortgage. And their apartment is smaller than my house. And my house is not big. But they have been called by God to reach university students in Germany. So they trust God to take care of the side effects of living in the most strategic place to reach students. They could choose to live somewhere cheaper, but they wouldn't be able to reach students like you who live in Germany. Jesus called them to a more expensive mission field. And they said, Jesus, I will follow you. We will follow you wherever you go. No thirsts. As long as I can afford it. No. What about you? Have you asked Jesus where he wants you to live, regardless of the side effects? And, and hear this. There is no righteouser place to live. It's not more righteous to live on campus. You're not a better Christian for living on campus. There is not a righteouser place to live. There is only obedience. There aren't super Christians who live in hard places and the rest of us Christians. Only those who live like living sacrifices and those who don't. It is a, it is a routine that me and Jessica have to fight for in our relationship with God where we say, Jesus, if you want us to go and live in a closed country as missionaries, we will. We are comfortable. We like the school that our kids are in. We like our little house. We like where we live. We love Western. We love Bellingham. We like this place. But if you tell us to go, we will uproot everything and go because to be your disciple means to say, I will follow you wherever you go. No conditions on that statement. We live as if we're dead already. The, 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 old, the ancient church called that white martyrdom. Red martyrdom was where you spilled your blood for Jesus. White martyrdom was you might as well be dead. You might as well be emptied of your blood already. The life you live is lived for him and his kingdom's purposes. It's easy to say, too. I, I, I mean, we've got to live this. I have to do this. And it doesn't get easier the more attachments you make in, the, in your life. More, if you get married or you get kids and have a house and that kind of thing. The point is that we need to let Jesus decide where we live, both now and for the rest of our lives. Because living sacrifices always ask, Jesus, where do you want me to go? Where are you going? That's a much better question. Where are you going? Where will I follow you? What country, what city, what neighborhood, even what kind of house? I have friends who they have a, they have a vision from God to welcome single people into their family life. They don't like how in a lot of the American church, single people are super isolated. So when they bought a house, they bought it with a, it was more expensive than they needed. They bought an extra bedroom so that they could perpetually have a single person living in their home for as often as they could. It was a more expensive way to live because of what God had called them to do. Even the kind of house you buy someday, if you buy a house, has to go through that filter. Jesus, what do you want us to do? I want to close with one more story. In the late 1800s, a young Belgian responded to the mercy of God and offered himself as a living sacrifice to become a Catholic priest and a missionary to the unreached people groups on the islands of Hawaii. His name was Father Damien. And he looks really weird in that old picture, so I'm not going to keep it up for very long. (laughs) 
But after a decade of faithful service, the Bishop of Hawaii called a meeting and explained to the priests that there was a group of people who lived on the north shore of the island of Molokai, pictured on that map. It's right in the middle. You can see a little Molokai island. And this community of people was brand new. They had just moved there. And as of yet, they had not been reached with the gospel, nor did they have a priest to minister in their midst. No priest in proximity. But unlike most assignments, priests are usually told, this is where you will be. The bishop refused to assign anyone to this new parish. And after explaining why, he asked the gathered priests to pray about whether or not one of them would consider becoming this new community's priest. Father Damien went home that evening to pray. And after much prayer, approached the bishop and personally requested that he be sent to the north shore of the island of Molokai. The reason the bishop had refused to assign anyone to this particular community was that at that time, the Hawaiian islands were facing a sudden outbreak of leprosy, to which there was still no cure. It was contagious, and it was fatal. And the island government was trying to stem the outbreak. So they had decided to ship all known lepers on the islands to one region on one island, to the north shore of the island of Molokai. So the bishop knew that assigning a priest to that parish was a death sentence. On May 10th, 1873, Father Damien hiked to the north shore of the island of Molokai and began his parish ministry. He built a chapel so his parishioners could come for worship outside of the blazing sun on their open sores. And he was more than a priest. He dressed ulcers. He built homes and shelters and beds. He built coffins and he dug graves. He did this for 11 years. Till one night, he was pouring boiling water for his evening bath and some spilled onto his feet. And he didn't feel it. So he knew he had contracted the disease. Father Damien died of leprosy on April 5th, 1889, before he was 50 years old. He was buried on the island of Molokai. But after he passed away, four more people, inspired by the mercy of God and the example of Father Damien, came to the Catholic bishop in Hawaii and asked to take his place. It was another young priest from Belgium, a nun from New York, a recovering alcoholic Civil War soldier, and a nurse from Chicago who offered their own lives to pick up where Father Damien left off. The question that I want to leave you with is when exactly did Father Damien die? When did he stop living his own version of life? When did he say, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go? No firsts. I wonder, where will the mercy of God inspire each of you to follow Jesus?
at whatever cost. Lord Jesus, I think that once in a while, following you, we come to like a moment of reckoning, a moment of decision. And not every night is a moment of decision, not every night is a reckoning, but once in a while we, have, we are confronted by something that says, ooh, I need to respond to this. And there's only two answers, yes or no. Jesus, I think that your word and the stories of your saints around the world tonight and hundreds of years ago invite a yes. Jesus, you say that the proper way to be a human being, the appropriate response of a created one like us to its creator, to our creator, is to offer ourselves completely and totally to you. God, I pray that every single person in this room would do that, whether for the first time tonight or the dozenth time. I pray, Lord, that we would let uh, the fact that we um, are living, are called to be living sacrifices, pray that would, that would affect our decision on where we're going to live next year, for sure. Or do we want to flood the residence halls with missional people? We want living sacrifices in every other door. I do pray, God, that next year, one out of every Corfa pair would be living on campus. That's our hope. That's our vision. But God, way more than that, way, way more than that for the rest of our lives, think of how the world might change if every person in this room said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. No conditions on that statement. That's where we want to be. And so, Spirit, you've got to do that in in our hearts. And, and we've got to be a part of the process and processing the people we trust and the practical outworkings of all those things. So we give you ourselves and we, we trust you to lead us where, we, where you want us to go. In your name, Jesus. Amen.